0: Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, January 26th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and you are indeed our redeemer. Amen. So this past week, I was thinking about brothers and sisters, namely famous brothers and sisters, and I spent a good hour or more going down this rabbit hole on the Internet uh, trying to find famous brother and sister duos, uh, and I know that our congregation spans quite a few con- um, uh, uh, generations with a-, a variety of interests among us, so I've tried to put together a combined... PUMC, at least what I would think be, uh, top 10 list of famous brothers and sisters. Are you ready? Here we go. Number 10, Jerry and Dick Van Dyke. A giant in the field of comedy and his little brother who had uh, quite a successful career of his own. Uh, Shirley MacLaine and Warren Beatty. I actually didn't even know until a few days ago that they were brother and sister. Uh, they have both had very illustrious careers. And uh, long before the Kardashians, we had the Gabor sisters, right? Eva, Zsa Zsa, and Magda. In the realm of politics, there may have been no more famous trio than John Robert and Ted Kennedy. Anyone over the age of 35 that's needed advice probably turned to these twin sisters at one time or another, Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren, otherwise known as Dear Abby, in country music, sisters Loretta Lynn and Crystal Gale are both very accomplished musicians in their own right, but has there ever been a more famous musical sibling group than the Jacksons, right? Rebby, Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, LaToya, Marlon, Michael, Randy, and Janet. Now we can look in the world of sports. There are quite a few famous siblings like Peyton Cooper and Eli Manning, a son of the great uh quarterback Archie Manning, Kurt and Kyle Bush uh, of NASCAR dominance. and Not to mention Venus and Serena Williams, two amazingly accomplished women in tennis. So if you don't count the Kardashians, that's my top ten. Uh, but I had to throw in one more brother and sister duo for good measure, Luke and Leia Skywalker. You know, especially since the Skywalker saga has just come to an end with the ninth movie in the series, The Rise of Skywalker. So, why am I talking about famous sibling duos? Because today we're going to be spending time with Christianity's closest sibling, Judaism. Welcome to week three in our current sermon series called Christianity and World Religions. And the goal of this series, as I say every week is not to try to convince you uh, why we're right and they're wrong when it comes to God. Because, let's be honest, that's not how Jesus lived. The goal, though, is to bring awareness and a better understanding of where others are coming from as they live out their faith traditions. My prayer is that this series leads to a greater sense of peace and cooperation among us here in the Antelope Valley and beyond, less misunderstanding, less stereotypical beliefs of what others may be like, a whole lot of less fear and mistrust of those who are different. And, and even if it only uh, manifests itself in the way that each of us thinks and speaks about those other faith traditions to our friends, neighbors, and co-workers, I believe it'll be worth the effort. Much of my research for this week came from Reverend Adam Hamilton's study of the same title as our series, Christianity and World Religions. So let's start off with some of the basics. To begin with, Christianity emerged out of Judaism, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. He grew up as a devout Jew. His parents raised him in the faith from a very young age, like joy, bringing him to the temple to be dedicated to God. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So our, our two faiths share a, uh, a beginning and a history together. But it's also a story about God and God's relationship with a particular group of people, the Hebrew people. It's not a faith that begins with a person. No, this faith begins with a people, and God chose a Hebrew man named Abraham to embody that blessing. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised to make of Abraham and his descendants a great nation, but not just for his own sake, but so that he uh, might be a blessing, they might be a blessing to the rest of the world. In return, Abraham and his descendants pledged obedience, trust, and faithfulness. After Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the story continues through Moses and God giving of the law or the Torah to the people. The Torah is, for the Hebrew people, the way to a life of harmony with with God, the world, and with other people. Uh, The Talmud, you may have heard of that word, the Talmud is the record of extensive commentary upon the interpretation of the law from rabbis and sages over the centuries. It was edited between the 3rd and 6th centuries. And and the rest of the plot line uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures is a story of God's covenant-keeping and people's covenant-breaking, which is actually... All of humanity's story, right, that that God loves us and God promises uh, blessings upon our lives and so often we wander away from God like the prodigal son, but God is always there to welcome us back into God's loving and open arms. The essence of Judaism can be stated in a single sentence known as the Shema. Inga read that for us this morning. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. It's called the Shema because that's the first word in Hebrew in this verse. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu. And according to Mark Biddle in this in his Smith and Helby's commentary on Deuteronomy, the Shema can be regarded as a positive restatement and, and radicalization of the first of the Ten Commandments, that you shall have no other gods before me. The Hebrew syntax is quite ambiguous uh, for this first part. It can either be translated, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, which, which underscores the unity of God, or it can be hero Israel, the Lord is our only God, which Emphasizes God's exclusive claim of our devotion over and above anything else, any other idols that we might put in our lives. God goes on to remind the people that this isn't just for them alone. No. God says, Keep these words that I'm commanding you today, keep them in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's a reminder that we are to teach others about God's love and place in our lives. We are to teach our children so that they might come like joy over her lifetime to grow and accept On her own, what it means to follow Jesus. Every moment of life can be an opportunity, a teaching moment, to connect our family and our friends to faith, to help them see how God is active and working in their lives. By the way, to fulfill the admonition to write them on their doorposts of the houses, many Jews will attach something like this, known as a mezuzah, to their door frames. It has portions of the Shema written in Hebrew. As a reminder, every time they leave their house, God is one. God loves them. God has created the whole world. By the way, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he began with that verse, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God with everything you have. And then he added another commandment from the Old Testament, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's been said by some that the essential focus of Judaism is the Shema put into practice in moral living, that Judaism is a religion of doing, of acting and reacting. It's a life of fulfilling the human side of the covenant that God made with the Hebrew people so long ago with Abraham. The secret of Jewish piety, according to Houston Smith in his book, The World's Religions, consists in seeing the entire world as belonging to God and reflecting God's glory. So there's this double theme that's running throughout Judaism, that we should enjoy life's goodness, that everything that is good in the world has come to us from God. And at the same time, the joy that we share is only enhanced when we share it with God, when we acknowledge God's place in our life and in the world, just like when we share it with other people. So, Jewish law sanctions all the good things in life, eating, marriage, children, nature, and at the same time, it elevates them to holiness because we remember that God is a part of everything. Something very significant happened in the year 70 CE or 70 AD. The Roman government destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, the one that the Jews had rebuilt on returning from their Babylonian exile Uh, centuries before. And suddenly the focus in Judaism shifted from uh, sacrifices made in the temple to the study of the law, the Torah, and its accompanying oral tradition in academies and synagogues. So it's no longer the priests now that have a main role in Jewish life and culture. No, but it's the rabbis, the teachers, who suddenly hold the communities together. Their synagogues, what we would call local churches, become centers not only for study and worship, but also for congregational life in general. It's here that Judaism acquired a distinctively intellectual dimension and character, which kept their faith alive for over 2,000 years. Now, scholars will tell you that there's nothing one has to believe in order to be Jewish. There's no official creed in Judaism like there is in Christianity. Jews run the gamut from those who believe that every letter and punctuation mark of the Torah was dictated exclusively by God to those who don't believe in God at all. When I was in seminary, I was doing a year-long hospital chaplaincy program. There were five of us uh, young adults, all in our 20s, who were at a hospital working two days a week uh, to to learn what it means to, to give ourselves away to others in a medical setting. And there was a, a young rabbi that was part of R5, and I remember being shocked when he told us one day that not all Jews believe in heaven or even in life after death. In fact, some do, but many don't. And it just kind of blew my mind, because at least heaven is something that almost every Christian uh, believes uh, about, but just an example of the range of theological beliefs among the Jewish community. While Judaism contains many variations and subgroups, there are really three main branches, we might call them denominations in Judaism. There's the Orthodox Jews, they believe that the Torah and the Talmud both were given by God at one period in time uh, on Mount Sinai. Orthodox Jews look for the coming of the Messiah's reign in Jerusalem as the Messiah for the whole world. There's a number of sects within the Orthodox tradition, uh, from a modern to the ultra-Orthodox or the Hasidic uh, uh, group, as many of us have seen in TV and movies. Conservative Jews hold uh, that the Torah is divinely given, but the Talmud, the, the writings about the Torah, is divinely inspired. It's a slight difference, but important. They allow for some faith adaptation based on the times and the circumstances. And then there are Reform Jews. They believe that the Torah is divinely inspired, that the Talmud was written by human beings. It takes a much more liberal approach and simplifies the traditional rit- ritual that Judaism has had over the centuries. Reform Jews, by and large, do not believe in a personal Messiah. They believe instead that Jews live as instruments of God in the world to help create the world that God envisioned originally. Houston Smith comments that Judaism is, is less orthodoxy than more orthopraxis, meaning that Jews are more united by what they do than what it is that they believe or think. Isaac Deutscher, in a self-confessed atheist in his book, The Non-Jewish Jew, writes this. What then makes a Jew? Religion? I'm an atheist. Jewish nationalism? I am an internationalist. In neither sense am I therefore a Jew. I am, however, a Jew by force of my unconditional solidarity with the persecuted and the exterminated. I am a Jew because I feel the Jewish tragedy as my own tragedy, because I feel the pulse of Jewish history, because I should like to do all I can to assure the real, not spurious, security and self respect of all the Jews. Unfortunately, Hostility towards Jews has been happening for centuries. It's called anti-Semitism. According to the Anti-Defamation League, anti-Semitism is the belief uh, or behavior hostile towards Jews just because they are Jewish. It may take the form of religious teachings that proclaim the inferiority of Jews, for instance, or, or political efforts to isolate, oppress, or otherwise injure them. It may also include prejudiced or stereotyped views about Jews. Unfortunately, Christians have often been the perpetrators of anti-Semitism, mistakenly referring to Jews as Jesus killers, when in reality, it was the Romans who executed Jesus. This past week, the Pew Research Center released an article in preparation uh, for the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp. The survey was taken about a year ago. It interviewed close to 11,000 Americans of varying faith traditions. And while two thirds of us Americans could identify the, the correct uh, uh, decades in which the Holocaust happened, less than half knew that over six million Jews were murdered by Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. And don't even get me started on those who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. I've been to the Auschwitz and Birkenau concentration camps. It's one of the most gruesome chapters in all of human history. As Christians, we have to take the lead in making sure that no anti-Semitic talk or actions go unanswered. Despite our theological differences with with other faith communities, we cannot allow hate speech of any kind for any group. We must be vigilant in supporting and standing alongside our Jewish brothers and sisters whenever acts of anti-Semitism occur. And if you've been paying attention, they unfortunately continue to occur in our country and around the world. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege of visiting Temple Knesset uh, Bar, located on Avenue J in Lancaster between 20th Street East and Challenger Way. The name, Knesset Bamidbar means gathering or assembly in the desert. Perfect title for a temple, right? The congregation started in the 1940s and 50s. Many Jewish engineers had traveled out to the high desert to work for NASA, and so the congregation was birthed. It's moved over a couple of times to different locations. Originally, it had ties to the conservative branch of Judaism. Now it's affiliated with the Reform branch. And speaking of anti-Semitism, the temple has had many security issues over the years, including having their synagogue burned down at one point. They've had swastikas spray-painted on their walls. They've had to increase their electronic surveillance, as well as occasionally uh, hire outside security firms, armed armed guards, and even practice active shooter drills. This is Rabbi Alan Henkin the spiritual leader of Temple uh, Beth Knesset Bar, Despite the rise in anti-Semitism in the United States, he told me that, that we're called, he said of his people, we're called to be Jewish out of love, not out of fear. But he's noticed today that anti-Semitism seems to be directed more and more towards those who are outwardly Jewish in their appearances like the recent stabbing in New York City last month in an ultra-Orthodox community or the shooting at the temple in Pittsburgh in 2018. Rabbi Henkin grew up in the Chicago area, moved out to the West Coast to be a religion major at USC. And then the reform movement opened up a seminary near USC and Alan was accepted into their rabbinic school. He spent his first year studying in Jerusalem. He eventually finished his studies at a school in Cincinnati, He's been the rabbi for a deaf congregation in the San Fernando Valley. He was actually up here in the 90s for a decade at Knesset Bar, And then he was asked to be a regional director for the reform movement. And after many years of serving in administrative positions, he returned to the Antelope Valley. Why? To be close to his kids and his grandkids. And now he is their quarter-time rabbi. Let's listen as Rabbi Hankin shares a little about how Judaism has changed over the years.
1: Well, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Rabbi Alan Hankin, the rabbi at Congregation Beth Knesset of Midbar in Lancaster, California. And I want to extend most sincere greetings to you from our congregation. I also want to commend Pastor Jim White for uh, this terrific sermon series. I wish I'd thought of it. It sounds so wonderful. Uh, It's a great pleasure for me to talk to you a little bit about the synagogue and about Judaism in general. Um, And a couple of points I would like to hit upon about Judaism. One is that I think many people think that Judaism is uh, very much uh, frozen in time, that Jesus came along and... uh, And the Jewish community basically stopped evolving. And and nothing could be further from the truth. Judaism has gone through enormous religious uh, development over the course of time. In the last 2,000 years, uh, Judaism has switched from a sacrificial kind of religion to a religion of prayer, from a religion uh, that was centered in a temple, a single temple in Jerusalem, to a religion that is now dispersed with hundreds, thousands, I suppose, of synagogues, and a religion that was led by kohanim, by priests who were, who were born to that position, and now one that is led by rabbis, uh, who are people who are just more learned than, than most Jews. So th- that's just a quick example of the ways in which the religion has evolved over the last 2,000 years.
0: Here's what the inside of the worship space looks like. You can see the beginning of the chairs in the foreground where the congregation sits on Friday nights for their Shabbat services. Here's a view uh, looking in the other direction uh, to see get a sense of how uh, their congregation is laid out. There's a sign in the front left side of the sanctuary that reads, both in Hebrew and English, deeds and kindness are equal in weight to all commandments. It's a quote from the Talmud. It's a reminder that we best show our love for God by how we love one another. That we can say we believe all these things, but it's really on what we do, how others see what we believe. In the back center of the worship space, there are these two brown doors. Uh, you probably see them. They house the most sacred elements in the sanctuary. Rabbi Hinkin was kind enough to open the doors for me so that I could show you what is inside. It holds the Torah, the sacred text of Judaism, handwritten copies, In Hebrew, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The stained glass immediately above the copies of the Torah remind us of God's everlasting covenant with Noah through the rainbow, how God is the true king, the crown, and that the rays of light emanating from the open book, to me, they remind us how words of life come out of the Holy Scriptures Each of the Torah scrolls has an ornamental covering. This one has 12 patches, each representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Rabbi Hinkin even opened the scrolls for us to see. There's a yearly Torah reading cycle, kind of like the Christian lectionary, and they read directly from the scrolls at their services. Our confirmation class had a chance to attend a Friday night Shabbat service back in December, and there were lots of prayers and, and singing from their liturgical books. It was quite moving. And then Rabbi Hinken pointed out one more thing to me. He said, you see this crease running down in the middle? Uh, that's not like a page like we have in our books. That's actually the end of the book of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. They just happened to be right at that point uh, in, the, in the reading cycle on the week that I went to visit. When I did this series back in Hawaii, I had the chance to speak with another Reform rabbi, Peter Schachman of Temple Emmanuel in Honolulu. And I asked him, what do you think is one of the most misunderstood things uh, about Judaism for those of us that are not in your faith community? And he said it would probably be that notion of chosenness. Many people assume that it's an elitist notion that, oh yeah, we are God's chosen people. But he said that's not really the case. It's not about being extra special over and above everyone else. That's not how chosenness is experienced in the community. Rabbi Shackman said... The oldest child in a family often has responsibilities that the other children don't. That doesn't make this child loved any more or less than the rest of the family. They are just different. They have different expectations placed upon them. We don't compare children, he said. Houston Smith echoed this in his book. The Jews did not see themselves as singled out for privileges, he writes. They were chosen to serve and to suffer the trials that service would often exact. By requiring they do and obey all that the Lord has spoken, their election imposed on them a far more demanding morality than was expected of their peers. There's a lot of things that we Christians share in common with our Jewish brothers and sisters, and as you might expect, though the main difference centers around Jesus. For the Jews, he was an important rabbi, a teacher, perhaps even a prophet. For Christians, Jesus is God incarnate, God's only Son, the Savior of the world, the Christ. I asked Rabbi Henkin to talk briefly about the Jewish understanding of the Messiah. Here's what he said.
1: Another major difference between Judaism and Christianity is, of course, belief in the Messiah. For Jews, the Messiah has not yet arrived traditional Judaism maintains a belief in the Messiah in fact Maimonides in the 12th century developed uh, articles of faith and one of them was anima Amin I believe in the coming of I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah even though he may tarry one of the differences between reformed Judaism and traditional Judaism is that reformed Judaism substituted uh, a a, a belief in a messianic era instead of a belief in a personal messiah. That is to say, there's a belief among Reformed Jews in the perfectibility of human beings that we will eventually be able to create a perfect world, a world of harmony and peace and love. And, um, and and that is what the, the symbol of the Messiah has meant in Judaism. So even within Judaism, there's all kinds of different beliefs about the Messiah, although there is agreement that the Messiah, for us at least, hasn't yet arrived. So in any case, uh, many thanks again for this great sermon series and for this brief opportunity to address you, and I uh, look forward to continuing our relationship with the Methodist Church.
0: One reason many Jews of Jesus' time didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah was because he didn't seem to fit uh, the the expectations and to fulfill all the letters of what they saw in their scriptures for prophecy. About having an age of universal peace and restoring the glory of the kingdom of Israel. These things didn't occur in Jesus' lifetime. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we in turn saw a different kind of Savior. One who lived out the Shema, With everything he had and his loving God with all of his heart and soul and might, he gave himself away completely to the world. One who found the purpose of his life by losing it. Thanks be to God for our Jewish brothers and sisters, for the legacy of faith that we share together and for the opportunity that we have to walk alongside them here in the Antelope Valley. And all God's people said, Amen.